Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what characterizes the Christian life? According to much of what calls itself Christianity in North America in our day, life with Jesus is comfortable. Life in Christ means health and wealth. It means feeling good about yourself. It means being in a good place. It means being comfortable with who you are. And it means feeling quite comfortable with your environment. And we have seen in our age, we have seen develop a sleek, self-contented, self-centered religion which calls itself Christian and which is quite at home with itself and quite at home in the world in which it lives, a, a comfortable Christianity. Is that how Jesus would describe the Christian life? How does Jesus describe it? Well, you know what he says, for instance, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where he says to the disciples, Whoever, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the Lord Jesus describes the Christian life in most uncomfortable terms. It is not a life of comfort. It is a life of not being comfortable with where we are and who we are. Let him deny himself. Enough to give most psychologists a heart attack if they hear us saying things like that. It is a life not just that is uncomfortable, but it is a life with a rather uncomfortable end. Jesus calls us to take the road of suffering and to go where he went on that road to the very end, to the very final consequences, to the death. Take up your cross, the Lord Jesus says. The cross is an instrument of torture, an instrument of death. Let him follow me. Jesus calls us then to a Christian life which, rather than being very comfortable, is in fact a life which is so full of strife and suffering and conflict that it produces in us a profound desire and need to be comforted. So these two versions of Christianity are radically opposed, mutually exclusive, to be comfortable or to need comfort. And what has marked God's faithful throughout the ages is that they have never been comfortable with the way things are. They live their life under the shadow of the cross. And as God's faithful serve him in the context of conflict and struggle and turmoil, God comforts us with the sure promises of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that when we read Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, written before the exile and before, therefore, the return from the exile, but already prophesying, before the punishment comes, already prophesying about God restoring his people. And so the godly remnant in Isaiah's time, and then later on in the time of the exile and return, they receive in this prophecy the promises of the gospel of Christ held out to them by the Lord. God comforts us with the gospel that we belong to him. 
We see that same thing happening in the 16th century. We see it throughout church history. And another example then would be the 16th century when our catechism was written in the 1500s, a time of much pain and struggle, a time when being a faithful Bible-believing Christian often meant great suffering and sometimes even cruel death for you or for your loved ones. And in that context too, God's people held on to those promises of the gospel of Christ to comfort his people. And they, they penned the words of our Lord's Day that we have before us this afternoon. Words that were written in blood. And many who confess these words paid the supreme price for believing them. But Lord, they won the church is holding on to those promises. The church is embracing that comfort in the midst of much pain and much suffering. Now, we're living more than two and a half thousand years after Isaiah's prophecy. We're living almost half a millennium after Lord's Day 1 was written, and yet we struggle too. As much as we have a very comfortable uh, level of uh, living, we struggle with our sin. We struggle with denying ourselves. And as we take up our cross and follow Jesus in a world and society which show themselves to be more and more hostile, to the founder and to the foundations of our faith, we find our hearts gladdened by exactly the same comfort which God set before our brothers and sisters of hundreds of years ago or even thousands of years ago. So we look at our Lord's Day this afternoon under the following theme, joyful comfort, the believer confesses, I belong to Christ. We're going to look at three things this afternoon. The, the cesspool of our sin. God comforts us, us in the context of the cesspool of our sin. Uh, secondly, the consequences of the fall. And thirdly, the close of life, the end of life. So first of all, the, the comfort that God gives us as we deal with the cesspool of our sin. Ursinus, one of the young men who wrote the catechism, he wrote a commentary as well. And in that commentary, he writes this about comfort. He says, comfort is that which results from a certain process of reasoning in which we oppose something good to something evil, that by a proper consideration of this good, we may mitigate our grief and patiently endure the evil. The good, therefore, which we oppose to the evil must necessarily be great and certain in proportion to the magnitude of the evil with which it is contrasted. They spoke pretty densely in the 16th century, didn't they? What is he saying? Well, comfort is something that we can hold on to to get us through. It's like a, a person lost at sea. The waves are crashing over this person and a life preserver is thrown to him and he holds onto it for dear life. And then as he holds onto that life preserver, it doesn't change the fact that he's still in the sea, he's still cold, he's still wet, he's still shivering, and the waves are still crashing over him. That hasn't changed. But it tells him that this is not going to last forever. It tells him that there's a way out. It tells him there's a way through. It tells him there's something better awaiting. And that comforts him. 
Aracinus says that the good which we latch onto must be great and certain in proportion to the magnitude of the evil with which it is contrasted. And we can think of a mother in labor. Many of our sisters can identify with that. What can help her through the unspeakable pain of childbirth? Why would any woman go through that? Well, as she's going through this pain, she knows that by God's grace, she will soon be able to hold this newborn life, a newborn baby in her arms. And that knowledge comforts her, gives her something to cling to. It pulls her through. It wouldn't be enough for her to go through all that pain and all that labor if she knew that at the end, she would just get a certificate. That wouldn't be worth it, would it, sisters? Not the same thing. So that the good in that case of the certificate would certainly not be in proportion to the magnitude of the evil with which it is contrasted. Now, Ursinus reasons this way. Because our sin is so great, we really need a great comfort of God in order to be able to deal with our sin. The, the bad thing, the evil, is so huge. So imagine how massive the good has to be the good which we need to bring us comfort. But we can also switch that around. As we meditate on the, the magnitude of the good which God sets before us in the gospel, we can learn how enormous is the magnitude of the evil of our sin. And that's something we confess we need to know, right? One of the three things we need to know to live and, joy in the, live and die in the joy of this comfort. Comfort Comfort my people, says my God. Tell her that her sin has been paid for. But at what price? How bad was my sin? What did it take to deal with my sin? What did it cost God to comfort me in my brokenness and my sinfulness and my need? Well, we have the answer in Isaiah chapter 53, that very well-known chapter. It speaks about the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory became a suffering servant. He became a man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected by men. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was brought to the slaughter like a lamb. What did it cost to deal with my sin? The Lord of life had to bleed to death, an agonizing death, a shameful death on a cross. And as we consider Jesus, the lamb that was slain, do we learn to feel most uncomfortable with our sin? Do we learn the horror of our sinfulness? Does that cultivate in us a holy aversion to our sin? We're real good at getting all wound up about other people's sins, aren't we? That comes naturally. That's easy. But do we get upset and horrified by our sin? Do we even understand 
what our sin deserves. Do we understand that even the smallest sin that we've committed today, yes, today, would have been enough to plunge the world into misery, the creation into groaning, and would have necessitated the death of the Son of God in order to redeem us. Do we understand that? Some of God's people in Isaiah's day and then later on during the exile, they would have raised their eyebrows at his words. Comfort? Comfort my people? What are you talking about? Tell her that her sin is covered? Really? Is it really necessary? They were comfortable. They were comfortable with where they were, with who they were. They were comfortable. They, were, they had built houses. They had started businesses. And later on, they were doing pretty well in exile. In fact, doing so well that lots of them didn't even want to go back to the promised land. They were enjoying their good life amongst the pagans. The fact that they were cut off from communion with God at the, at the temple in Jerusalem didn't really bother them that much. Well, they kept up their religion, sure. But on the whole, they didn't think things were too bad. They weren't grieving. They weren't longing like the psalmist in Psalm 42 as he looks to God for comfort. He says, Lord, I want to be in your presence. I want to be in your temple again. They weren't doing that. They were okay with the way things were. A little bit of religion and life is good. And things haven't changed much. A lot of people like that nowadays. A lot of Christians nowadays, they don't think it's healthy to have a psychological hang-up about your sin. It's bad for your self-esteem. You've got to feel good about yourself. You've got to feel positive. Enough talk about sin. Let's talk about victory. Well, it sounds real good, doesn't it? Except that's not what the Lord says. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You want comfort from God? You want the comfort of the gospel? You want the comfort of belonging to Christ? It's not for you unless you know what it is to mourn, to grieve, to be uncomfortable with who you are outside of Christ. There's no comfort, there's no gospel of forgiveness for those that don't know how to grieve over their sin. If you don't know your sin, you can't know the Savior. If you're comfortable with your sin, you cannot know the comfort of the gospel of forgiveness. And that's why when we're talking to our neighbors and co-workers and people we know out in the community, we're wasting our time if we want to start with the good news. Because it doesn't make any sense. What message do we have for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? What message do we have for them if they do not first understand that they are in need of a Savior? They've got to understand that first. And to understand that, they need to know that they're sinners. And that's a very unpleasant and unwelcome thing to talk about. Well, God sets before us today the comfort of the gospel for those who know their need for a Savior, those who are horrified by besetting sin in their lives, those who cry out to God to be delivered from sin, those who hate sin, those who fight against sin, those who long to be totally free from sin. And to those 
who are not comfortable with sin, but who live in constant conflict with it, God sets before them the gospel of His Son. That full payment has been made, that the highest price imaginable has been paid, that there is freedom. Look at what we confess. It's pure scripture. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. You know what that means, Christian? It means you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to your passions. You are no longer a slave to your old nature. You don't have to sin. You can say no. You are set free from Egypt to go to the promised land. You are set free from exile in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. You are set free from the power of the devil, free to serve God with joy. That's a massive change that the Spirit of God works in the life of the Christian. Before Jesus comes into our lives, we have to sin. Before the Holy Spirit works regeneration and faith and, and newness of life in our hearts, we couldn't not sin. We were like the slaves in Egypt. We had to serve our master. Our master was sin. Our master was the devil. And they had power over us. But when you're Christian, your relationship to sin and the devil is radically changed. We Christians, we struggle. Oh, we struggle with sin. We struggle with failure. It's a massive struggle. But God tells us as we struggle, listen, you are no longer a slave. As strong as that temptation is, and as deeply as I've fallen down into that sin or temptation, you are no longer a slave. You can say no to sin. Not saying it's easy. Not saying we'll always manage. But know this, believer, you are not under Satan's power. You are in the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. And so there is the comfort for us that sin is not inevitable. Sin is not unavoidable. Sin no longer has any right to have total control of our life. And when we know that gospel truth, what a comfort as we fight and fight. And sometimes it seems like we're, we're being pushed back by sin and the enemy. We're losing ground. But we know the truth that we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. And that gives us vigor and courage to stand up to sin. Once again, our sin, that's where the battle starts. Not running around telling other people about their sins. Our sin, and to say no to my sin more and more. Luther, I've mentioned this before. Luther, when he was tempted by sin, he would say, I am a baptized man. He was basically quoting the catechism. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. That's what your baptism preaches to you. You carry the gospel with you wherever you go. The gospel of your baptism says you don't belong to sin. You're not a slave of sin. You are a child of God. You belong to Christ. In every way and in every time 
and in every situation. And so we can, we can look at sin and we can look temptation in the eye and we say, I don't belong to you. I don't have to listen to you. I belong to Christ. Well, that's all very nice, but it doesn't always work, does it? We don't always do that, do we? We often go back to our old ways and just kind of fall back into our old sinful habits and routines. God knows that. God knows how weak we are. God knows how framed that we are only dust. And so what does he do? Does he come and beat us up? Does he give us, send us on a guilt trip? No, God comes with more comfort. Every Sunday, every sermon, every sacrament, more comfort. Every Sunday, every sermon, every sacrament, God is drumming the message into us. Jesus has paid the price. For what? For all my sins. He has fully paid for what? For all my sins. How many? All my sins. Also that addiction that you're fighting and that you just can't seem to get a foothold in that fight. That sin too. Also that sin which just clings to you and clings to you and you've been working your whole life trying to fight that sin and you keep failing at it that sin too Jesus has paid and God looks at you through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ when he sees you in Christ he doesn't see that sin that's not how you are described or identified in God's eyes he sees a child who is pure and righteous and holy, a woman who is perfect and pure and holy and just. He sees a man who is faithful and good and sinless. He sees us as he sees his own son. How do you sometimes wonder how God can put up with me? Look how quick I am to sin. Look how quick I am to to sin, but slow to grow in holiness. Look how often I disappoint my heavenly Father. And sometimes we can be so ashamed of our failures and sin, we're almost too scared to go back another time to God in prayer and, and ask for forgiveness. We think, well, God must be sick of hearing me say the same thing because I've, I've asked forgiveness for this stupid sin so many times that it's embarrassing. And we look with horror at the cesspool of our sin. But God says, my, my child, my child, don't look there. Look to Christ. God holds before us the comfort of the gospel. There is no sin too foul. No sin too shameful. No sin too horrible. No sin too dirty that the power of Jesus' blood cannot wash it away. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? What are you, what are you letting rule over your life in terms of guilt for sin? Let it go. Give it over to Christ. Bring it to Him. Confess it to Him. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. There is no limit to God's forgiveness. He will never, ever turn away a truly contrite heart. He will never, ever refuse to forgive a broken spirit. If you're carrying guilt for something you've done just today or yesterday or, or years ago, give it up. Stop it. Don't carry that guilt. Give it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. He washes and scrubs us clean. 
in his precious blood. And this is astonishing comfort, isn't it? In this messy pitched battle we're waging with sin in this world, we, we know how messy sin is. It messes, messes us up, messes our minds up, our lives, our relationships. It chokes faith. It messes up not only our lives, it messes up the lives of others. Sin hurts, sin destroys. But such is the power of the blood of Christ that we can take our messed up hearts and our messed up lives and our messed up minds and our messed up relationships and we can bring them to Jesus. And his blood not only, not only washes away our sin and shame, but by the power of his word and spirit and by his blood, he begins to restore and reconcile and heal and renew. That's the comfort. As we look at the cesspool of our sin, God calls us to turn our eyes and to look to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And then secondly, we see this comfort and receive this comfort in the context of the consequences of the fall. You remember, I think it was about two years ago, that soccer team in Thailand that was trapped in the cave. I think the entire world was watching and praying for their safe uh, rescue. They were trapped in this cave, and there was room, and there was sitting or in, a, in, a, in an area of the cave where there was, they were on dry ground. And to get out of this situation was a dangerous thing. It was a tortuous, dangerous path to safety. There were narrow passengers, passages, some of them underwater. You would, you would be bumping your head. You'd be scraping yourself on, on rocks, and there was a danger of dying as you left this cave. In fact, one of the rescuers did die. The way out hurt. The way out was something to make you afraid, but it was the way out, the way to life. That's a little bit of a picture of what, of what our spiritual life is. We're stuck deep in the cave system of our fallenness in Adam. And we may have a certain degree of comfort in just staying where we are and not moving. The way out's going to hurt more than staying where we are. But staying where we are, we're going to die. And getting hurt and being risking dying on the way out and being submersed in the water and bumping your head on the rocks. That's the way to life. The way back is not pleasant. The way back hurts, but it's the way back. And that's, we talked about that this morning, sermon too. It's the way of the cross, isn't it? It's the way back out of our sin is not always pleasant, but it's necessary. You look at the way back uh, from Egypt, the way from Egypt to the promised land, it was a hard journey. It was just heat and, and sand and all kinds of problems. And, and, and it, but it was necessary to get through that to get to the promised land. The way back from exile was the same thing. They had to go through the desert. They had to leave the comforts of life in exile. They had to go on a dangerous journey. They had to make a new start. It would have been so easy to stay just where they were. What does God say to these exiles who are a little bit afraid of the pain and the suffering involved in the way back into the presence of God? Well, look what he says here in Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You belong, body and soul, to me. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God says the way back is going to hurt. It's going to be hard. It's going to be scary things. It's going to be pain. But it's the way back, and I will be with you, and I will lead you through it, and I will bring you home. And that's always been the dynamic of life in the kingdom of God. It was the same thing in the time of the Reformation. The time of the Reformation, 16th century, to follow Jesus meant to face unspeakable suffering and persecution, to see your children slaughtered before your eyes, the elderly burned at the stake, young women buried alive, just for confessing the truth of Lord's Day 1. That was enough for them to be killed. It would have been so easy to say, you know what? Yeah, this is all really nice, this reform stuff, but... I'm just going to believe it in my heart, and then I'm going to stay in the Roman church and do the signs and bow the knee and, and uh, just hope God figures it out in the last day. It would have been so easy to say, you know, Jesus is not the head of the church, the Pope is. It would have been so easy to say, well, you know, salvation, uh, yeah, it's by works. It's by works, not by free grace. Don't kill me. I want to stay alive. We're a church under the cross of terrible persecution. The comfort of the gospel was the only thing which allowed them to keep going. To know not only that their suffering was ordained by God and under God's sovereign providential control, but also to know that only through this suffering would they come to glory and eternal life. The way out is hard, scary and painful, but it's the way out, and it's the only Way out. And so they had the faith of Moses. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, 24, Hebrews 11, 24, you'll see that Moses had the very same faith as we confess in Lord's Day 1. 11, 24 of Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not going to be identified with my position of comfort in the world. No, I will choose, look at this, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The way out hurts, the way out is painful, but it's the way out the way to life. And so God does promise to us as well to bring us safely to the promised land. But as we go on our journey and our pilgrimage, it's a hard journey. It goes through the desert. We're harassed by enemies. And sometimes we can be like the Israelites in the desert. We think, well, it was better in Egypt. When I don't try so hard to obey God, life's easier. When I don't try so hard to be a person of integrity and follow the scriptural norms about sexual ethics and about business practices and about all kinds of things, you know, the more I follow Christ, the more painful my life gets. Maybe I should just back off a little bit. Maybe just being a slave to the world and to sin is a little more comfortable, less painful, less conflict. That's kind of like that soccer team saying, you know what, this is really painful the way out. Maybe we would have just been way better off staying in the cave. 
And we can be tempted to think like that, but then we see the rope of God's promises in Christ. It's something to hold on to, even in the darkest and toughest times. What does that promise hold out to us? Well, not just the full payment of all of our sins and the freedom that we have in Christ, but look further on page 517. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. God's with us on this painful way. God's with us on this scary journey. God is with us. How is he with us? In a completely sovereign way, so that without his will, not even one hair can fall from my head. Now, there are about 100,000 hairs on the average head. Now, I know some of us have fewer hairs than others, but about 100,000 hairs on average... You may not keep track of them, but God does. He numbers them. He knows the number. He knows when one falls. That means there are about 700 trillion hairs on heads all around the world. 700 trillion hairs is a lot to keep track of. God knows where everyone is. Not one falls to the ground without his will. So Jesus preserves me. Jesus is on the throne. Christ was raised from the dead, was seated at the right hand of the heavenly power, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And what does the Bible say? God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. That's my Lord, the one to whom I belong, body and soul and life and death. He runs the universe. What does it say? What does the scripture say? He's the ruler of nations. He's the ruler of the universe. All things hold together by the word of his power. He's in control. He upholds everything. That means not just the orbits of the planets, the movements of the galaxies, but also he has detailed knowledge and control of the electrons orbiting the neutrons in, or the nuclei in every atom in our body. There's not a cancer cell that can replicate itself outside of the control of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is not a trigger or a knife that can be pulled outside of God's sovereign control. There is not a pink slip that can be written outside of God's sovereign control. What does the scripture say? Jesus exercises this total sovereignty over the whole universe, micro and macro, for the church. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.22. God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church. If you read the news or if you look at the news, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like God has forgotten and the Lord Jesus Christ is no one. But the fact of the matter is, is that Christ is in charge, that he is sovereign, that he rules everything, and that he does that for you. He is directing all things towards the last day. He is bringing his bride home. He died for you. He bled for you. He's not going to let you go. No one can pluck you from his hands. Nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not cancer, not sickness, not unemployment, not the death of a loved one, not persecution, not a pandemic, not all the combined weight of the devil, the world, and my old nature. None of that can knock me off course. None of that can get between me and my Savior. He who has begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. So that's the gospel, that we belong 
to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joy to live in the comfort of that gospel as we do that in the context of the cesspool of our sin and the consequences of the fall, and then briefly as we consider the close of life, the end of life. There comes a time when we come towards the end of our pilgrimage on this earth, and we're faced with the breaking down the ruin of this earthly tent, our body. We get old. We get sore. It's harder to move, harder to hear, harder to see. Then after a lifetime of being buffeted, after a lifetime of struggle to stay on the path, we, we have the pains and the aches of old age and then the specter of death looming before us, the end of our pilgrimage on this earth. And sometimes the end comes even before we're old. Sometimes a loved one is taken away in childhood or youth or in the prime of life. But whether old or young, when we face the end, then the question sets in, is this all that there is to it? God sets before us the gospel of comfort. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that gospel teaches us that we can know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in the heavens, not built by human hands. You know, that way out is painful. It's scary. The way through suffering to glory, it's painful and scary. And the very end is the hardest bit. It's like you've been on this terrible voyage and, and the chart sent you through all kinds of terrible weather and dangerous reefs and rocks and, and pirates and, and finally you arrive at the paradise island that's on the maps. And you think, well, we've arrived. And then suddenly you see that to get to the island, you're going to go through a narrow, stormy, rocky channel cut between the, the jagged rocks and reefs. And you think, wow, after all I've been through, now I've got to go through this. That's a little bit what it's like at the end of life. After all that pain and all that fear and all that suffering, now I have to deal with this. And also, my brother and sister, in this time, God sets before us the gospel. And the name of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the good news. And the scripture tells us that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a Savior that knows what it is to suffer, but also a Savior that knows what it is to die. He's done that. He went ahead in front of us. He's done that. He's experienced that. He was humbled unto death, even the death on the cross. And then he was greatly exalted. He went through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's now in the new Jerusalem. He went through suffering to glory. And he comforts you with the knowledge that not even death can separate you from his love. You know why, brother and sister? Because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have in you the spirit of the living God, living in you, Christian. You have the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ in you, the spirit of life, eternal. If there's one thing you can't do to the spirit of God, you can't kill him because God is life. He cannot die. 
and the God who is life, the God who cannot die, lives in you. That's why Jesus couldn't stay in the grave. Death tried to hold him, says Peter in Acts chapter 2. Death tried to hold him, couldn't. He just got up and walked out because he is life. The God of life lives in you. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God. You know what that means? You cannot die and remain dead. God guarantees that just as Jesus got through suffering and entered into an eternity of bliss in God's presence, so we too can and will follow in his footsteps. He has blazed the trail and we will follow it. And the Christian mourns death, yes, but the Christian mourns not as those who have no hope, but we know that the glorious gospel of the resurrection and the life is an objective, irrefutable fact. And that means that no matter how many setbacks and sins and persecution and attacks and sadness and even the final result of death, no matter all of that, my eternal hope is sure. My eternal home is secure. That's my comfort. I belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul, life and death. Now, what does that mean to you? How does that change your life? Your brothers and sisters, in the time of the Reformation, they created all, they made up all kinds of neat ways of, or creative ways of killing people for confessing what we were looking at this afternoon. And what they would do with the young teenage girls is they would bury them alive sometimes. And you know what our sisters in the time of the Reformation would do when it was their day to die? These young unmarried girls, they would put on their best dress and they would go out with a smile on their face to meet their persecutors. And they would say, today is my wedding day. I will meet my bridegroom. You know, when you read those things, I have no idea how they did that. I know I couldn't have that kind of faith, but the Holy Spirit granted them that strength in the time of dying for Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, when we know this confession here, not just some words on paper, they were written in blood. And when we know the power of this confession, we can joyfully take up our cross and we can deny ourselves and we can follow Jesus through fire and through water, through death and through the grave itself into everlasting peace and joy at God's right hand. That's what, that's what we hold on to. And when we hold on to that, we can get through and we can face anything. That guarantee of the gospel is my comfort. In life and death, there's nothing, there's no one in all the universe that can give me such comfort in life and death. What gets me through the pain? What guarantees my eternal welfare? Not money, not sex, not pleasure, not drugs, not alcohol, not the world, not power, not nothing, not no one, but only Jesus Christ, only the gospel, only the word incarnate. We can sum it up can't we? What is your only comfort in life and in death? You can sum it all up in one word. Jesus. Amen.